Well, I, um, I don't know if it's uh, technically okay uh, to baptize someone with a bear shirt, uh, but um, Jesus did come to save sinners, right? So we'll just trust that will be part of Andy Jang's sanctification uh, as he moves from the dark side to the purple side. Uh, but hey, praise God. That is fantastic. Uh, just to see what God has done in Andy and Gary and Ellie. Um, we just praise God for that. He sends us out to make disciples and to baptize them. And, and man, it's just a joy to see it today. Thank you so much for those of you who were baptized, just for your very courageous testimonies and um, joy, really, this morning. Uh, if you have a, a, a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, uh, we'll, we'll start in chapter 12, the very last verse of chapter 12, and then we're going to read today through Acts 13, verse 12. So turn to Acts chapter 12, verse 25. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. We will put the scriptures on the screen up here uh, as well this morning. As you're turning there, I'll say I've been preaching through the book of Acts over the past few months. We're about halfway through the book of Acts now. The book of Acts tells the story of what happened after Jesus ascended back to heaven. Jesus came to earth, he lived, he died, he rose again to pay for the sins of sinners. And, and then Jesus ascended back to heaven. And Acts then covers the next 35 years or so of history when the 12 apostles and other early Christians then went out to tell people about Jesus. This book was written by a man named Luke who also wrote the Gospel of Luke in, in the Bible. And we're now in Acts chapter 12. We'll be reading uh, starting in verse 25. Let's pray before we read. Well, Father, we just thank you for an opportunity to open your scriptures. We, we do believe, Father, that it is through the Word of God. It is through the scriptures and through the work of your spirit through the scriptures that you draw people to your son Jesus. And it is a privilege, Father, to open your word here this morning. And as we do, as we look into the word, we would simply pray, Father, that you would bless us with the gift of your Holy Spirit working through the word to bring light to our souls so that we might understand what we read, so that we might ultimately see Christ in all of his glory. We thank you, Father, for this portion of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 12, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. 
When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Amen. You know, the book of Acts, if you had to to boil this book of Acts down and sum it up in just one word, you could say that the book of Acts is a book of mission. That's what it's about from start to finish. When Jesus was still on this earth, before ascending, He gave His twelve apostles and other disciples a mission. Something for them to do after He ascended. Jesus said it a couple of different ways. Matthew 28, 19, He said this. He said to them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them. He's essentially saying it's time for you, early Christians, here in the book of Acts, it's time for you to go now. And it's time for you to scatter and to spread, to to make more disciples, more Christ followers in all nations. It was their mission. Or Jesus said it a little differently at the start of the book of Acts. He said this in Acts 1.8, he said, you will now be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You can just leave that up there. Jesus was just saying to them, you apostles, you you early disciples, you will now be my witnesses. You you will tell people uh, about me, my, my life, my death, my resurrection. You will share the gospel good news about me. It was their mission. To go and make disciples, to to be witnesses for Christ. And and that right there is what we've seen play out now in the book of Acts. Chapters 1 to 7, the early Christians were witnesses for Christ in Jerusalem, sharing Christ with Jews. But persecution then scattered them out, and Acts chapters 8 through 12 They were then witnesses in Judea and Samaria, sharing Christ now with Jews and half-Jews. And in Acts 13 now, to the end of the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 28, the early Christians are now moving out as witnesses toward the end of the earth, sharing Christ now with Jews, half-Jews, and non-Jews, or Gentiles. Acts is a book of mission. The early Christians working hard to fulfill the mission handed to them by Christ. Going out as witnesses, making more disciples toward the end of the earth. And man, 
here is the thing that we desperately need to catch in the book of Acts. This mission that we see here in Acts, well, this is now our mission. These Christians got things started. They, they took the, the proverbial ball from Christ, if you will, this divine mission to make disciples, and, and, and they ran the first few difficult yards down the field for 28 chapters here in the book of Acts, and then they handed the ball to us. That we now might go as witnesses. That, that we now might make disciples for Christ here in America or other countries moving now toward the end of the earth. You stop and think about it. We now essentially live in Acts chapter 29. We are the extension, the, the continuation of the book of Acts. This mission is now our mission. But man, here's the beautiful thing about Christ. He, he didn't leave us all alone to fulfill this mission. No, Jesus gave us one very important resource. He gave us His Holy Spirit. Every Christian here in this room, if you are now truly trusting in Christ and following Christ by faith, if that's you, well then the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, now lives within you. But listen, one thing that spirit inside of you is, well that spirit is a spirit of mission that is a missionary Holy Spirit in your heart given to you, given to us, to help us to fulfill our mission. You know, when you look at the Bible, every time in the Bible Jesus spoke about this mission for his followers to be witnesses or make disciples, he always mentioned the Holy Spirit. Just look at this. This is Matthew 28, 19. Jesus said this, Go and make disciples of all nations, and behold, I am with you always. Go and make more disciples, but don't worry, because I will be with you. How? In the person of the Holy Spirit. And what will the Holy Spirit help you do? Help you fulfill your mission. Or Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And again, there's that connection. You, you, you'll be my witnesses, but don't worry, because my Spirit will be with you, empowering you to do what? To fulfill our mission. The Jesus Bible, it's a little translation of the Bible, says it like this. A little footnote there says, The Holy Spirit is the power God has provided to move His kingdom mission forward. And just pause on that for a second. Please don't divorce the Holy Spirit from mission. Christians talk a lot about wanting more of the Spirit, wanting more of the, the, the gifts of the Spirit, which is great. We want more of the Holy Spirit here, more of the manifestations of the Spirit, more of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'll be preaching about the gifts of the Spirit in just a couple of weeks. But listen, a lot of Christians who want more of the Spirit, they don't give a lick about mission. 
They, they just want more power in, in my own life or something, but it has nothing to do with my lost neighbor. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a spirit of mission. A missionary spirit. We, we see it all through Acts. The Spirit helping Christians to go as witnesses, to make more disciples, to fulfill their mission. And in this text that we just read right here, we see a very clear connection between the Holy Spirit and mission. We can see three ways here, I believe, in this text that the Spirit helps us with mission. What do we see here in this text? How does the Holy Spirit help us with mission? Here they are, what we see in this text, I believe, on the screen. The Spirit calls to mission. The Spirit empowers for mission and the spirit conquers on mission and the first thing we see here in this text i believe number one the spirit calls to mission acts twelve twenty five there said that saul and barnabas were now returning from jerusalem and they're returning back to Antioch. I've got a map for you this morning, kind of shows you what goes on here in this passage. They're starting right here. Oh, you actually can't see it. It's cut off. It's down in the very right-hand corner would be Jerusalem. That's where they're starting. Saul and Barnabas are now leaving Jerusalem, and they're heading 300 miles north up to Antioch, which was in Syria at the time. It was a large multi-ethnic city. Antioch was half a million people there. And back in Acts chapter 11, a new church was started up there in Antioch. Some Christians had gone up there as witnesses for Christ. They had shared about Christ. They had made more disciples for Christ up there. And a church, a new church, was started there in Antioch. One of the first churches that was made up of both Jew and Gentile believers. And Saul and Barnabas, Acts chapter 11, well, they then equipped those new believers. They taught and trained those new believers, which is what Jesus taught us to do. Go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all that I've commanded you. So Saul and Barnabas had equipped these new believers there in Antioch, but there was a famine, so the church in Antioch then sent Saul and Barnabas with some resources back down to the church in Jerusalem to, to help them. And they're now returning here to Antioch. And they're returning, uh, chapter 12, verse 25 says, with a young man named John Mark. We know some things about John Mark. Uh, the church in Jerusalem, earlier in Acts, the church in Jerusalem has been meeting in John Mark's mother's home. So probably a pretty wealthy family. And Colossians 4.10 says that John Mark was Barnabas's cousin. Probably a younger cousin of Barnabas. And he's taking him under his wing, which Barnabas was so good to do for different people. And early scholars in church history say almost unanimously that John Mark was the one who would eventually write the Gospel of Mark in your Bible. So he'll do some big things, but he is still young at this time, and he has some things to learn, as we'll soon see um, in Acts. So these three men, they arrive back up in Antioch, 
And we read there, Acts 13, 1, that there were some prophets and teachers in this church in Antioch. Luke mentions five men, a very diverse group of men. He, he mentions Saul and Barnabas. He also mentions a man named Simeon, whom Luke said was called Niger. Niger in Latin means black, so he's probably a black man from Africa. Then Luke mentions a man named Lucius from Cyrene, which was on the northern coast of Africa, so also probably a black man. And then Luke mentions a man named Manaean, who Luke says was a lifelong friend of King Herod, who had persecuted Christians. So this very diverse group of men, which is just the way Jesus works, isn't it? I mean, he, Jesus, he takes people from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different families, all kinds of different skin colors. He takes people who would never probably get along out in the world, but in his church, Jesus puts them together as one, and they love one another and serve with one another. And these five men, Luke says, were functioning as prophets prophets and teachers in this Antioch church. They were the leadership of this church most likely. And the Holy Spirit now, working through these five men, directs this church in Antioch to do something. If you look again at verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, it could have been here that it was just really these five men who were worshiping kind of off in private by themselves somewhere and fasting together. But most commentators think that Luke was probably referring to the entire church in Antioch there. That the entire church was worshiping together. Some corporate gathered services like this maybe. And the whole church was fasting. So this was a congregational every person there type of fast, abstaining from food or other things like that. The Bible speaks a lot about fasting, uh, a, a, a spiritual discipline that is good for all believers uh, to practice. Uh, it's a way of humbling yourself before God, a way of embracing your, your weakness. It's, it's a way of acknowledging your dependence upon God. It's a way of seeking God's face or seeking God's will. You, you need to make a decision in your life or something like that, and you don't know what to do. As a Christian, consider fasting. John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, he said this, he said, whenever men are to pray to God concerning any great matter, it would be expedient, advantageous, or beneficial to appoint fasting along with prayer. For since this is a holy exercise, both for the humbling of men and for their confession of humility, why should we use it, fasting, why should we use it less than the ancients or the early Christians did in similar need. God would instruct us to, to fast at times when we seek his face. And, and listen, fasting in the Bible, it, it does typically occur with other things. 
like with prayer or, or worship like we see here. Luke actually men- mentions fasting twice in, in this passage. In verse 2, he says that this church was worshiping and fasting. And then verse 3, they then prayed and fasted. And you, you don't typically just fast alone, just to fast. You fast to free yourself up to do more of other things. So you fast from food, or you, you fast from TV, or some of you need to fast from video games, or you fast from something to free yourself up more for other things, like worship or, or, or prayer. And it seems that this entire church in Antioch, most likely, was now worshiping. They were fasting together. It was maybe a season of it, probably seeking God's face here, seeking God's, God's will, his direction for them. This church had just recently been created. Disciples had been made there. A church had been started. And now what? Now do we just gather up and wait until Christ returns? No, we want to make more disciples. Here we are, Lord. What do we do now? And man, your, your, your life group, we have life groups in this church. Your life group needs specific direction for a mission focus or something like that. I would encourage you to fast and pray as a group. Don't sit down once, write a couple ideas, and give up. Fast and pray. Ask the Lord. The elders here are now fasting and praying one day a week, asking God for particular things. And God just, man, he loves when his people seek him like that. God God loves it. And God here now in this passage, being the kind and the gracious father that he is, he now answers this church, in verse 2, says that the Holy Spirit now said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And we don't exactly know how the Holy Spirit said that to this church, but Luke seems to be implying here that, that the Holy Spirit spoke through one of these prophets. A word of prophecy, a specific word from God for this specific moment. Saul and Barnabas, I have a job for them. And man, the good news is that God can and still does speak like that at times. A word of prophecy. We'll look at it when I preach on the spiritual gifts. You know, we also at times, just like the early Christians, we just need a very specific word from God for a very specific moment. Saul and Barnabas, or or. Pete and Phil set them apart. I have a job for them to do. Just a really, really good God leading in specific, gracious, intimate ways through the Holy Spirit. And and the Spirit has now spoken here, it seems, through one of these prophets. And what does the church then do? Look at verse 3. Then... After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They fast again now. And they pray. And this was probably for some time, maybe days, could have been a few weeks, probably making sure they'd heard correctly. Testing all things, testing this 
prophecy. They, they wanted God to bless this new work when they sent Saul and Barnabas out. So they pray, they fast, and they then lay hands on Saul and Barnabas, committing them to this work and, and send them off. And these two men, they have John Mark with them, but these two men now embark on what people today refer to as Paul's first missionary journey. Paul in Acts will actually go on three different missionary uh, journeys. The first one that starts right here will cover about 895 miles by land, by sea, and they will return again to Antioch in Acts chapter 14. And you just pause for a second. You just pause. Think for a second about the sending of Paul and Barnabas here. You know, it's actually pretty shocking what this church just did because this church just sent their two best men. The two guys who started this church. The two guys who built this church. The two primary leaders in this church. I can guarantee if I'd have been part of this church here in Antioch and this thing looks like it's coming down the pike, I'd have been like, hmm, did you sure we heard the Spirit correctly here? I mean, I think I heard the Spirit say Zeke and Dexter, the guys who sleep in the back every Sunday, man. Hey, wake them up, guys. God's got a job for you. Uh, Let's send these guys and keep the best to ourselves. But that's not what God does. No, God sends the best. And I believe that is a little bit of an indication there of just how important mission is to God. How important the lost are to God. Those who don't yet know Christ. How intent Jesus is to make more disciples. Jesus is not content to just continue to work with the disciples here. He wants to raise up more He has a passion to spread his name, to spread his glory. He has a passion to spread his joy, to spread forgiveness, to spread eternal life out there. And listen, that right there, that is a healthy church. That's a healthy church. Gathering to worship together, fasting and and praying together, small groups together, but also going. And sending to, to, to neighbors and to co-workers, to other cities, to other countries. Gathering for worship, but also going on, on mission. And here's the thing. Our mission to the world, please catch this. Our mission to the world is actually part of our worship of God. You are obeying God. You are obeying Christ's commands. And your obedience on mission in and of itself is an act of worship of God. It's a demonstration of your joy in Christ. Is this being on mission part and parcel with our worship? And listen, a church that gathers for worship in services like this or in small groups, but never really goes on mission, 
is not really worshiping God all that well. And that church will struggle, will become a dead sea. There's no healthy outlet just hoarding everything here and and dying. Oswald J. Smith, he said this, the church that does not evangelize, that does not go and share the gospel of Christ will fossilize. And many churches have fossilized. So, you know, that's the first part of the text here. When you look at the first part of this, this text we, we just read, what do we see there? Well, we just see a connection between the Spirit and mission. The Spirit calling here two men. The this, this Spirit calling here an entire church to mission. And, and listen, the, the Spirit does the same today. The Spirit calls individual Christians, calls entire churches to mission. The, the Spirit starts by calling every Christian generally to mission. Through, through the Bible, those texts we read, Matthew 28, the Spirit calls you, Christian, to make disciples. Acts 1, the Spirit calls you, uh, Christian, to be a witness for Christ. Those texts are for you, calling you, the Spirit calling you generally there to mission. But the Spirit also calls Christians more specifically to mission. The Spirit calls Christians to specific tasks on mission. The Spirit calls some to leave home on mission. Missionaries, like, like Saul and Barnabas, to, to, to other cities or, or other countries. But the Spirit calls the others to stay home on mission. To neighbors and, and, and co-workers and people you meet in the street, the grocery store. The, the Spirit calls some to be pastors who will motivate for mission. The Spirit calls some to be church planners, to start churches like this one in Antioch, a church on mission. The Holy Spirit calls some to be life group leaders, to, to lead on mission. The Holy Spirit calls others to, to be members in a life group, to be on mission with the others in, in the life group. It's just these very specific calls from the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a particular God-given vocation for you. You know, we hear that word vocation, and we typically think of our jobs. You know, that's not where the word vocation comes from. The word vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means to call. Your vocation is your God-given calling as a follower of Christ. It's the specific thing God calls you to do, to, to focus on as his follower. And listen, God has a specific mission, vocation for you if you're a follower of Christ, for every follower of Christ. You know, we're, we're like an army at war. We're, we're all in this war together. We have the same general mission to be witnesses to the lost, to, to make disciples, to tell them about Christ, but, but we have different vocations in this war. Some are called to be foot soldiers, some commanders, some drive tanks, some are, are, are medics. That, that's a church. All the same mission, but unique vocations on that mission. So let me ask you, if you're a Christian Christ follower today, what, what is your God-given 
vocation, in life, or, or, or on, on mission? What, what is the Spirit calling you to do? How do you know your God-given vocation, your, 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 your calling from God in life or in mission? Well, there's a helpful uh, thing that I heard from Edmund Clowney, former professor at Westminster Seminary. He talked about both an internal and an external call from God. He said that God gives you, as a follower of Christ, an internal call. He, he puts something on your heart to do. It seems to have wired you in, in certain ways. Your, your experiences seem to point you in, in certain directions. You have a desire for something. That's this internal call from God through the Spirit. But Edmund Clowney said, there's also then the external call from God that comes from your church family. From, from the leaders in your church, from, from your community of believers with, within your church, they, they then hear what's on your heart, they, they pray, they help you to discern, and your church then helps to confirm, yes, that seems right, that seems like it fits you, or keep praying, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily seem to fit you. The same could go for a life group. You, you have an internal call, you think, from the Spirit to a certain people, a certain location. You pray, you think yes, and you run it by your church and the people in your church, and they pray and they help you discern that seems to fit, this internal and external call. I think we can see something like that here in this text. Somebody here thought that they'd heard from the Spirit. Sin, Saul, and Barnabas. I've got a job for them. And the church then fasted and prayed, probably seeking confirmation. And they got it. Yes, that's right. Laid hands on them and sent them out to do that which God had called them to do. So can I encourage you, follower of Christ, if you don't yet know what your God-given vocation is for life or, or, or for mission, what, you don't know what God's calling your, your life group to do, I would encourage you to ask the Lord that you would pray, you would consider fasting, you would ask the Lord to begin to show you, and when the Lord puts things on your heart, you would talk with your church family and let them help you to confirm if that's God's calling for you and trust that God will lead you through that process. That's the first thing in this text. Is this one way the Spirit helps with mission? The Spirit calls to mission. And a second thing here then, the Spirit empowers for mission. And we see that here. Saul and Barnabas, they have now left Antioch on this missionary journey. Isn't it, um, isn't it kind of humorous the way the Lord calls people at times? All we know from this story is that the Holy Spirit said go. Didn't tell him where. Didn't tell him what. Just go. But that's how the Holy Spirit works. In the story of Abraham, God didn't tell Abraham everything he was going to be doing. God just said, Abraham, leave. Leave your people, leave your land. And as Abraham took steps of faith, God clarified 
And that's basically what happens here. They just leave <laughs> that we know of. And I'll show you here where they now go in verses 4 to 6. Here's the map again. You can just leave this up here. So they're up in Antioch, start there. They then travel, verse 4 says, about 16 miles to Seleucia, which is the port city on the Mediterranean. And they then sailed from there about 60 miles to Cyprus. And you know, there may have been a good reason for them to go there. Barnabas was from Cyprus. Where do we go? Well, let's go to my home island. (laughs) Maybe we'll start there, see what happens. So they go. And listen, for these guys back in the first century, if you actually wanted to start fairly easy on your missionary journey, that would have been Cyprus. Because Cyprus back then was a little bit like Hawaii or the Bahamas uh, to us today. William Barclay said that Cyprus was called Marcaria, which meant happy island because of its perfect climate and its abundant resources. Hmm, where should we start out on our mission trip? How about Hawaii? Let's go there and see how it goes for us. But man, this this place, this island was still a very needy place. And it was a very important place. You can see it's kind of the crossroads for the Mediterranean, a very strategic island. And they start there. Verse 5 says that they arrived there in Salamis, northeastern uh, coast, and, and then preached the word of God. Verse 5 says... Uh, uh, they preached Christ, it, Christ in the synagogues of the Jews. And that's always going to be Paul's method anytime he gets to a new place. We'll see it. He always starts preaching to Jews in the synagogues. And then when the Jews kick him out, and they almost always kick him out, well, he then goes outside and he preaches to the Gentiles. And that's probably what they're doing here in synagogues. They start in Salamis. And the Greek that Luke uses here in this text indicates that they then preach all the way through Cyprus, continuously, stopping along the way, 90 miles across Till they came to the southwestern port of Paphos, John Mark assisting them, verse 5 says. We don't know what John Mark did. Uh, He could have cooked. He could have cleaned. Uh, (laughs) He could have done uh, some basic duties. He did the laundry or something. Or maybe more pastoral duties. He he, he was probably functioning kind of like a a ministerial intern. And they were training him. And they were were kind of raising him up. And, And listen, John Mark... He might have enjoyed the first part of the trip uh, as they were traveling through Happy Island. (laughs) Who wouldn't? But things will get more difficult down the road. And the difficulty starts here in this text. If you look at verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. A Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. A little humor, I think, here. The guy's name is Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. And Paul, in just a couple minutes, will call him son of the devil. So I think Luke is probably giving us a little humor there. He's called Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So there's this guy, Bar-Jesus. He's also called Elamus. We'll see in a second. Uh, he's a magician. 
not like a magician in our day. He's not like standing on the street corner in Paphos and doing card tricks for money and pulling rabbits out of a hat. No, magicians back then, the, the Greek word was magos, or you can think of magi, plural, at the birth of Christ. The, the magicians were basically occult astrologers. And they, they, they interpreted the stars, they, they used magic books and potions and incantations. They, 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 they called upon certain deities or, or even called on, on demons. And this magician, Barjesus, Luke says, had attached himself to Judaism, a false Jewish prophet. So just picture the guy with a little yarmulke on his head, a Jewish cap on his head, and the crystal ball on his lap. That was, that was this guy, and he was with, Luke says, the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. This guy was the head of the Roman government on Cyprus. This is the top dog on Cyprus. Big wig here, important guy, Gentile leader. He could influence many. And, verse 6 says, Sergius Paulus wanted to hear the word of God from Saul and Barnabas. He's ripe. He's ready to hear about Christ. How many times have you run into somebody who's ripe and ready to hear about Christ, and then somebody else stands in and opposes you? And that's what happens. Look at verse 8. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name. It's just another name for Bar-Jesus. It means wizard. He opposed them, Saul and Barnabas, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So he's somehow setting himself against Saul and Barnabas. Probably out of fear for his own position. He kind of had an in with the proconsul. He may have been paid by the proconsul, one of his counselors. And Bar-Jesus is, is threatened. He's threatened by the gospel. He's threatened by Christ. And he opposes, seeking to keep the proconsul from Christ. And, and why did he do it? Well, here's the primary reason. Because Satan hates Christ. That's where this opposition really came from. Ephesians chapter 6 says that our battle is not ultimately with flesh and blood, but, but with spiritual forces in heavenly places. Satan hates Christ, and Satan really hates it. When Christians like Saul and Barnabas here go out to share the name of Christ, or Satan hates it when Christians just stand for Christ in any way. In this fallen world, Satan doesn't like it. You will then experience some trouble. You may have heard of Corrie Ten Boom. She spent months in a Nazi concentration camp. But do you realize that she probably would not have been there in that Nazi concentration camp if she and her family had not stood for Christ and sheltered people from genocide, hiding Jews in their home. But they stood for Christ, and because they did, they were caught, and she suffered 
for their stand for Christ, her sister Betsy dying beside her in the concentration camp. Kent Hughes says this, There is a cost to sincere service for Christ. Never share your faith and you'll never look like a fool. Never stand for righteousness on a social issue and you will never be rejected. Never reach out to the needy and you'll never be taken advantage of. Never go to Cyprus to share Christ and you'll never be subjected to a confrontation with Satan. Satan hates when Christians stand for Christ and Satan really hates it when Christians go out to share the name of of Christ. Stay in your home. Satan may not bother you, but you go out and the lion will roar. And he does here, opposes now working through this wizard, and the Holy Spirit responds through Paul. If you look at verse 9, but Saul, who is also called Paul, and just to let you know, now that he's out in Gentile territory, he will lose more of his Jewish type of background name. He will be called Paul throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke says. Notice the connection between the Spirit and what Paul says here. He looked intently at Elamus and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you or against you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And listen, <laughs> Paul's words there, not exactly what we would call Minnesota nice. <laughs> Stop and think about this. Sometimes we try to be so nice that we miss the point. This confrontation that happens in Minnesota, it sounds different. Um, excuse me, sir, Elamis, you fine magician. Would you mind just kind of stepping over there for a minute so we could talk to this other man? Or we could just leave and we'll send you a Minnesota hot dish. No, Paul's words, you son of the devil. You're an enemy of all righteousness. You're full of deceit and villainy, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. The hand of the Lord, God himself, is against you. You will now be blind. Bang, it happens. You know, there's a time when the only appropriate thing is a rebuke. Clean, sharp, Clear, speak the truth in love still, but speak the truth, not in email, passive-aggressive, not in email, face-to-face so that person can look in your eyes and you rebuke in love. Guarantee that's what Paul did. That takes great boldness. And Paul does it 
Why? Because he was just naturally bold? I don't think so. Luke connects to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit emboldened Paul. The Spirit telling Paul in a heartbeat here, this guy's a crook, he's, he's a false prophet, and emboldening Paul. He's, he's Spirit-breathed in the moment, boldness to speak, and then this Holy Spirit power to work this miracle. And immediately, Luke says, mist and darkness fell upon Elamus. His physical blindness, now a picture of his spiritual blindness. But man, you look at this, there's still great mercy here from from God because God could have struck this man dead like God did with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 but God doesn't no Luke Paul says him you will be blind for a time but still an opportunity to repent to turn to Christ in faith great mercy from God and I want you to pause there for just a second because do you realize that that this this man Elamis he, he's a pretty good picture there of you and me in our lost condition before coming to Christ in faith. Maybe not exact, but similar. The, the language that Paul uses there to describe Elamus and this rebuke, well, the Bible uses similar language to describe us in our lost condition. The Bible says that you, because of sin, you are like Elamus. You're a child of the devil, the Bible says. You're a child of God's wrath. The Bible says you're an enemy of righteousness or an enemy of God. The Bible says that God is against you. And you, the Bible says, are spiritually blind. Elamus, in some sense, that's you. If you're not connected to Christ by faith, but God is merciful. And God gives you time to repent, to turn away from your sin, and to cling to Christ in faith, and truly begin to, to follow Christ in faith. And please hear me on this. The Bible says you must repent and believe in Christ. There's no other way to be freed from your spiritual condition. You must turn from your sin, you must cling to Christ as your Savior, follow Christ as your Master, and then, the Bible says, your sins are washed away. Then you're forgiven, a child of God. But man, the, the main point here, the second part of the text, it's, this, it's the Spirit again connected to mission. The Spirit now empowering for mission. That, that thing that the Spirit called Paul and Barnabas to do, well, he now empowers them to do it on this missionary journey. And the Spirit, Spirit will do the same thing for you, Christian. He'll do the same thing for you. That which God calls you to do in mission or, or in your, your life, your vocation from God, whatever that is, if it's to leave home on mission as a missionary or to stay home on mission or to be a pastor, church planner, whatever that is, whatever He calls you to do, the Spirit will empower you to do it. In the moment... Whatever you need, the Spirit will supply. So, can I encourage you? You find your God-given calling and trust the Lord to empower you in that calling. Take steps of faith toward it. And the last thing here quickly we see, third way the Spirit helps us on mission. The Spirit first calls to mission. The Spirit empowers for mission. And finally, the Spirit now conquers on mission. If you look at verse 12, then... The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
And astonished might not catch the sense completely. There's one translation of the Bible that says that this man was now shaken to the core at the teaching of the Lord. And not just shaken at the teaching of Christ, but shaken at the power of Christ because this magician is now blind right there in front of them. And then the proconsul comes to faith. I believe he's forgiven. He's a child of God and now you baptize him. And man, what a victory for the kingdom of God this is right here. This guy's ahead of the Roman government in Cyprus. He's top dog, important crossroads island in the Mediterranean. And this guy's now a devoted follower of Christ. He can influence many. And man, you know, this right there is probably one of the primary reasons why God sovereignly sent Paul and Barnabas to Cyprus. They didn't know it, but God was sending them to this one man to bring this one man to Christ. And the Spirit has now done it. And what do we see here? Well, it's the Spirit in mission again. The Spirit now conquering on mission. Not without opposition. Now, Satan hates it when Christians go out for the sake of Christ. But the Holy Spirit ultimately conquers here. That is a final lesson for you, Christian. The Spirit calls. He empowers. And He conquers. So, Man, find your God-given vocation in life, in, in, in mission. Trust the Spirit to empower you and trust the Spirit to conquer on mission. It won't always look like the Spirit is conquering in your life on mission. There will be setbacks. There will be for Saul and Barnabas. They'll be stoned. They'll be beaten. They'll be chased out of different cities. You will face setbacks on mission. The second you intend to do it, you plan for it, and you go out as Christians to share the gospel, all hell may seem to break against you. Confusion in your family, conflict in your life group, that does not necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. That probably means you're doing something right. And Satan hates it. But please hear this, the Holy Spirit will ultimately conquer in and through your life on mission. You may not always see it, you might just sow lots of gospel seeds, but it will ultimately happen. The Holy Spirit raising up disciples of Christ in all nations toward the end of the earth. So please catch the connection between Spirit and mission. Don't divorce the two. We want more of the Spirit, more of the gifts of the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is a Spirit of mission. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the blessing of your Holy Spirit that you have not left us alone on this life as followers of Christ, that you have blessed us, you, you have uh, called us, you, you, you've given us your own Spirit. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit to comfort us, the gift of the Spirit to build up the church, but the gift of the Spirit building up the church, not just so we could sit inside, but the gift of the Spirit to then help us as a church fulfill our mission to make disciples, to be witnesses toward the end of the earth. So Father, we just look to you and ask for your grace as a local church that you would help us, Father, to work together depending on your Spirit 
Father, knowing setbacks will come, knowing it will not be easy, that it will be hard, Father, help us to go and help us to not quit when it gets hard. Father, lead us and direct us. We thank you for your ways that you will one day raise up worshipers for yourself from every single nation on this planet. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen.